The business of culture, the culture of business, creatives, media and technology, markets, politics, startups. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're building an audience by giving them the news in a more digestible format. It's still the news, though, by the way. It's still the sort of classic reporter banging on doors, here's what's happening. It's then just presenting that in a way more digestible way, plus some fun stuff in there, right? You know, here's some business news. Here's some other stuff happening that anybody who's worked in media knows that readers love. People want to know accountability journalists. They want to know journalism. They want to know what's happening. They also want to know where they can eat and the fun thing to do this weekend. That's Carrie Pfeiffer, veteran Richmond Times Dispatch editor now with Axios Richmond. That's one of the prolific digital media startups, many local market efforts amid the ongoing demise of newspapers, such as the Richmond Times Dispatch. Can you profitably reinvent the local news? Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. A shout out to our listeners on WVTF, Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can message me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me is Carrie Pfeiffer. She is founding co-author and editor of Axios Richmond. This is one of the many, more than dozen local startups that emanated out of national media startup Axios, which was founded in 2016, 2017 uh, with national journalists with tremendous experience from Politico and the Washington Post who wanted to double down on areas they thought they were being abdicated in the great landscape of journalism. How are you? Hey, Robin, I'm great. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Well, I've been eager to have you on. I've tried for several years back when you were at the Richmond Times-Dispatch and you had PR issues or attorney issues with it. But <laughs> this is this is always top of mind for me. As, a, as many listeners know, I'm a Richmonder. The mainstay newspaper here, your old haunt, is the Richmond Times-Dispatch. And it is now in the crosshairs. The parent company, Lee Enterprises, is in the crosshairs of a hedge fund, an activist hedge fund, which has cobbled together newspapers and cut them to the bone. And it's trying to provide an alternative as a publicly traded company and slashing itself in the meantime. There were many great victims of this downsizing, many great local reporters, and we're left with a kind of a skeletal newspaper, which has me wondering about the likes of Axios Richmond or the Virginia Mercury or Richmond BizSense or the others who are trying to fill this enormous void left across dozens and dozens and hundreds of localities across the United States. Yeah, well, we are we are doing our best here at Axios Richmond to try to fill that gap. But to your point, it's a it's a it's a pretty big gap to to uh, to fill. But I'm certainly happy to be one of like the startups, right? One of the new people coming into this space. Well, take me back to, you know, very briefly, more than a decade ago, Warren Buffett bought the Richmond Times-Dispatch and a handful of other papers. And he said, I remember him remarking on this, Warren Buffett, one of the wealthiest people on the planet, I think he's worth $70 billion, the Wizard of Omaha, Berkshire Hathaway. He said that church picnics and barbecue advertisements aren't going away. He held on to this paper for a few years. It was Berkshire Hathaway newspapers, and he promptly spit it out to Lee Enterprises. I mean, a person worth this much did not want to be in the newspaper business. Were you there when he acquired it and when he spit it out? I was. I was. I remember we had, there was speculation. I think, I can't remember if we all knew 
uh, that Media General at the time was for sale or not. I think we did, but there was a lot of speculation of where we would end up. And it was a celebration, we thought, when uh, Berkshire Hathaway, in our minds, it was Warren Buffett, right? Right. Warren Buffett was buying us. We had a conference room toast with Cherry Coke um, to Because he loves that Cherry Coke, right. Yeah, to sort of commemorate that. And uh, it was was short-lived, and I think not the cash infusion, from my perspective, from a lot of the, the people in the Richmond Newsroom's perspective, the sort of cash infusion we were hoping for. Well, that's the par- that's the paradox in this, and we discussed it with a newspaper panel and everything. I'm going to excerpt it later in this episode. But could you have counterfactually, Axios is making the investment here, and Axios incidentally was acquired by Cox Enterprises for a tremendous amount. It's been a, a you know tremendously successful startup in the various verticals it's gone into, audio, newsletters, everything else that Axios does. Counterfactually, if you had one of the greatest investors in the world go in more than a decade ago to try to double down on local and it didn't work for him, I guess he wanted to kind of maybe ride it for the cash flows. I was noticing that it's not like they were hiring left and right and staffing up on it and making this kind of a regional colossus in a way that would drive circulation and advertising sales. Yeah, I think at the time, and I think there were reports at the time when when Berkshire Hathaway acquired all of these East Coast newspapers, which was primarily what it was. Right. There were reports at the time that it was a, or maybe soon after, that it was a property acquisition for him, right? He was buying up a bunch of media companies, and those media companies came with media buildings. And I think I think he held on to those after the sort of rent-to-own arrangement with Lee Enterprises. He had, yeah, he had a temporary arrangement with Lee Enterprises where he kind of spit it out and said that you guys run it and we can have some sort of cash back arrangement. But then he commented in April of 2019, the newspaper business is, quote, toast. They're going to disappear, he said in an interview on Yahoo Finance. And I mean, he owns a handful of newspapers, including his hometown's Omaha World Herald. He even hosts a newspaper tossing competition during Berkshire's annual shareholder meeting. But the things that are essentially news, he said, is what you you don't know that you want to know. You know what happened in national sports the moment it happened, and you can go watch a video of it and so on. You can go to ESPN and see what's going on. You know what's happening in politics. You know what's happening in the stock market. What you didn't know what was going to appear in the ads. It was survival of the fattest, he explained. Whichever paper was the fattest one because it had the most ads in it, and ads are news to people. Now, we have seen a, a a tremendous haves versus have nots in the newspaper business, as you've realized. The New York Times has probably never felt as as comparatively hale and successful with its subscription business and the Trump bump. The Washington Post was acquired by one of the wealthiest people on the planet, Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon. The Wall Street Journal is backstopped by Rupert Murdoch. Even the Los Angeles Times and Boston Globe were acquired by billionaires. And then there's everyone else. There's everyone else who is dependent on circulation, on ad sales, and the local newspaper, which has you know, thinned its ranks over several years and ran a lot of newswire copy and is now coming back and trying to ask people to pay more belatedly for online subscriptions. Yeah, it was my my colleague at Axios, Sarah Fisher, had a fantastic piece on that this week on sort of what's happening in the overall media landscape, but especially in print media, uh, le- legacy media, especially as it sort of hangs on for a, a, a long, cold winter, I think might have been her, her headline on the story. So, yeah, he said, bad winter coming for U.S. media companies. I can quote from it. It says, it's a brutal, fearful time for American media with companies scrambling to cut costs and secure cash, a scenario reminiscent of the early pandemic. The new economic reality means layoffs, hiring freezes, and other cost-cutting measures. So far, nearly 3,000 media jobs have been cut this year with more than one 
third, which are 1,100 coming from the news media industry. I mean, this this song has remained the same for much of the century. We've seen all the Pew statistics in the number of newsroom jobs that have contracted. It's just been enormous, the, the, the gutting of the sector. It's both secular and cyclical. And I want to fast forward to your departure from the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Axios knocking. I mean, when I look at the Axios local map, I mean, it's pretty amazing what they've set up so far. Atlanta, Charlotte, Dallas, Des Moines, Miami, Philadelphia, obviously Richmond, Seattle, Austin, Chicago, D.C., Detroit, Nashville, Phoenix, Salt Lake City, Tampa Bay, Boston, Columbus, Denver, Houston, Northwest Arkansas, Raleigh, North Carolina, San Francisco, the Twin Cities, and coming soon, Cleveland, Indy, New Orleans, Portland, San Antonio, San Diego, and probably other cities. But I have to wonder, you know, you're putting out this email every day, which is indispensable and read by many Richmonders and Virginians, but you need the, the raw material to go into it. You need the shoe leather reporting. You need the reporters in City Hall or at the cop shop reporting on the demise of the police chief. And it's not like you and Ned, your your battery mate, have that manpower. So, I mean, well, we have some, we have two, two, a two person manpower team, but I think that's kind of what's really interesting to me about, about Axios Local and Axios Richmond and, and what, uh, the Axios model has, has done is that, yes, we write a newsletter every day and that's sort of the delivery method for our journalism. And Ned and I are out there every day reporting stories, actually doing shoe leather, uh, beat reporting. Uh, two people is, is a small team to do it and certainly, uh, no two-person team can do what a newspaper can do with a newsroom or a reporting team of, of 20 or 30, although that's certainly not what exists at the local level anymore. Um, but no, it's still a fair amount of reporting that we're doing. And I think that was important to the, to the founders of Axios when they started the company, that they were hiring journalists and reporters. And they've sort of been very vocal about the fact that they went into every market and found the best reporters there. And I can say they have. I mean, my Axios local colleagues are, are are stunning in their talent. They're Pulitzer Prize winners. There are people from the Atlantic, from their daily newspapers, from their uh, daily NPR affiliates, from their uh, daily papers who made this switch and are bringing over sort of the raw reporting skills and putting it into Axios and putting it into the Axiom format. So the bet is that at some point you fill the vacuum so much locally, nationally, that it becomes an indispensable login. You can't be a player in a market like Raleigh or Richmond or the Twin Cities without this login. You have to have the information to have the know. I mean, clearly Axios proved this in D.C. It proved this in New York, in many of the markets that it covered nationally. But is there a precedent out there for getting a return on investment for investing in local shoe leather reporting? I mean, I'm thinking about the people who have decamped, really wonderful reporters who were not necessarily in profitable beats. Your colleague, Kenya Hunter at the Richmond Times-Dispatch, who covered education, which has kind of become abdicated and it's become a news desert in Richmond. Mark Robinson, who covered a lot of socioeconomic issues that weren't necessarily profitable up front. The other people doing the, the difficult, not glamorous, not necessarily, you know, MSNBC guest national caliber reporter people, but the ones that were filling the news hole and filling the print. Yeah, but I, I, I think to me in, in this, and I could be a little Pollyanna, Pollyanna about this, but there is always value in reporting. There is always value in somebody going out and getting the information and holding public officials or people in power accountable and then telling the public what's happening. There's always going to be value in that. The question is, and fortunately for me, not a question I have to answer, but how do you 
build the infrastructure around that to make it profitable for the people to go out and do that work. And one of the things that Axios does is they say, let's make it digestible, right? Like let's, as much as, you know, writing a 4,000 word story about fill in the blank education, housing and why it matters, gives a reporter a lot of space to do that work in, distilling it down and just saying, here's actually the facts of what happened is critical to Axios, to the mission of that. And then it also allows the infrastructure by which people, the, these small, we can grow, right? Richmond could eventually become bigger. And instead of having two reporters, maybe we could have three or four, but we're building an audience by giving them the news in a more digestible format. It's still the news though, by the way, it's still the sort of classic reporter banging on doors. Here's what's happening. It's then just presenting that in a way more digestible way, plus some fun stuff in there, right? Some eat this great sandwich in town. You know, here's some business news. Here's some other stuff happening that anybody who's worked in media knows that readers love. Readers, you know, people want to know accountability journalists. They want to know journalism. They want to know what's happening. They also want to know where they can eat and the fun thing to do this weekend and a cool house that just was listed for $12.9 million. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Carrie Pfeiffer. She's founding co-author and editor of Axios Richmond, one of the two dozen plus startups that Axios, the national media startup, uh, has seeded across the country. Uh, When did you join and when did the newsletter launch? Um, I started at the end of February and we launched May 31st. So yeah, I'm quoting from the October 26 email that went out. Uh, Happy Wednesday, Richmond. It's worldwide, worldwide howl at the moon night. So Get weird later to get today's weather, situational awareness. You immediately have the Richmond police chief, Gerald Smith, resign Tuesday, the city's fourth police chief to step down in four years. Very bulleted. And you have at the very top in italics, today's newsletter is 796 words, a three minute read. One big thing, the housing market. You go to the second bullet. You have two, help for homeless kids. I mean, is there is part of you, you know, three, the current Richmond public schools, bloody hallway. There was a, a, a cleanup, a, a, a terrible scene. Uh, Pod Virginia makes state politics easy. Feel smarter about Virginia politics. So are you are you worried about having to bulletize all of this? I know that it's a distinctly Axios look and it's very digestible. It's very skimmable over coffee. You get to your desk or you log in in the morning and you see it and it opens up to various other things and you hyperlink and you tweet throughout the day. But it's not the front page of the newspaper. No, but it is, I would argue, it is your one glance of what you, anybody would need walking into, into the day today to find out about what's happening in Richmond. I mean, the, you know, police chief resigning, obviously that is the big story of the day and it is going to be the big story of, of, you know, it's been, it's been the big story for a while here, what's happening with the Richmond police chief. But, you know, that news went out at six, seven o'clock last night. Ned and I are reporters. We got it in a digestible way, and we're going to come back with a bigger story tomorrow. But what's in this story, honestly, not even this story, what's in these sort of four bullet points that's not in everybody else's story, right? Like it still got, it still gets you everything you need to know. The police chief resigned. He's the fourth police chief to step down in four years. It's, it's the, it's, it's every piece of news you need just in bullets. What is the secret sauce in this? Jim Van de Hei and others, I mean, Axios, Nationally, the founders, they must realize, like, we have Richmond BizSense, which, to be fair, has completely eaten the Richmond Times-Dispatch's business coverage lunch. I mean, it was some guy who worked there who went off, Aaron Kramer, I believe, and started this. And they've become kind of an indispensable B2B thing for 
the property market, for attorneys, everybody who has to be in the know. And they subscribe to this and pay for it. And they have paid events. They just were digital natives in a way that the newspaper wasn't. There's the Mercury, which I believe Ned Oliver was at before, your your battery mate. I don't know how profitable they are, but I, I also don't know what the secret sauce is. Is there something about inside baseball newsletter writing? Is it intelligence? Is it gossip? Is it news that you cannot afford to not subscribe to. And this at a time, carry of, of login fatigue, obviously. We're being asked to log in, to buy logins for everything. From the New York Times, the Washington Post, Netflix, Spotify, Apple, you know, iCloud, Apple Music, Apple News. Uh, you really have to make a case to somebody that your login is indispensable. Sure. So I think, I mean, I think you said a bunch of like really, really interesting things in that. I mean, you don't actually, you don't have to log in to read us. You actually don't even have to click anything. You can get to it in your inbox and read every piece of it without actually clicking on anything. I think that's a huge part of what Axios is trying to do. And, uh, you know, it is not by any means my place to speak to the founders of the company, but that is something that they were keenly aware of when they launched Axios, big Axios five years ago and then got into the local market a year and a half ago. It's, it's sort of the answer in many ways to fatigue. In terms of what we do well, what BizSense does well, what Virginia Mercury does well, the digital is the, is the, is the key part. It's not a secret sauce. It's as much as, you know, newspapers and very much at the Richmond Times Dispatch, but at, at any daily outside of the Washington Post or the New York Times, any sort of local daily, there's, they're still in the year 2022 trying to figure out how to make the digital shift as though the internet just happened. But digital, but here's the thing, does digital pay? Like you're putting all this stuff up and you're aggregating it. And is it a profitable proposition for them to have you and Ned or maybe a couple of other stringers? Like, does it scale? This is what I want to know. It, you know, your colleague, Sarah Fisher, was reporting companies like Puck and Substack, digital natives, they scrapped their plans to raise money this year. BuzzFeed, the digital native today is valued by public investors at just 16% of the 1.7 billion it was valued when it raised 200 million from NBC Universal in 2016. Digital media giants like BDG Media, Vice Media, and Vox are exploring ways to either sell or generate enough short-term cash to keep operations afloat. So it's not like there are people out there like ad salespeople that are like, "Here, carry Ned, take my money." No, there, but but there are there are ads in Axios Richmond and, and Axios that you've seen. I don't sell them. Ned doesn't sell them. There's an ad infrastructure around it. How it scales? I mean, I'm not the right person to answer that question. But I think, and there are different models, right? Like Axios Richmond is and Axios is ad based. Uh, Virginia Mercury is a nonprofit newsroom out of the state's newsroom, DC based conglomerate. So they're actually not looking for profitability. Um, I cannot speak to BizSense, but the number of ads on their website and the fact that they recently switched to a subscription model for their archives suggests to me that they're doing okay, but of course anybody can do better. I think the thing is, is that it's, to me, it's often, it's too often a comparison of, of looking at what newspapers did and, and newspapers and their glory. And there were special ad based glory days in the 1990s when it was wall to wall ads that could support uh, these huge desks of, sure. you know, a features desks that had a classical music critic and a rock music critic and two movie reviewers, uh, which I, which existed in Richmond not too long ago. Back in the day when there was this abundance of full page department store ads and car advertising ads and before Craigslist and Google and Facebook sucked all the advertising revenue out of the room. Yeah, exactly. And also when there was less competition and the only way to get news was radio, 
your daily newspaper or your television station. Newspapers owned that and I think has still been too slow to make the transition that started happening at the end of the 1990s, which is people want to read their information online. I think there's always going to be an ability to do that with ad support. The question is, how do media companies, legacy media companies, pivot to make that work? Thankfully, I don't have to answer that question. Well, you, I want to just take you back in a few minutes before we break. But uh, as editor of Richmond.com and the Richmond Times Dispatch's website, were you frustrated in the efforts to get them to innovate, to be more nimble? <laughs> it's, it's really hard to do. I remember hearing stories that you couldn't even get veteran editors to go on social media or anything. There were some real dinosaurs out there. It was a union shop. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. I had lots of moments of, of, of frustration in my in my time there of digital anything. And I think, I mean, I think there's still some of that at, at daily papers all over the country where there there's a mindset from a lot of legacy print newspaper people that digital is is the enemy and is coming to take their beloved newspaper away. And my mindset was always that newspapers to me was a quality of journalism, not a physical product. It is. It speaks to me to beat reporters, to shoe leather reporting, to to just accountability journalism. It speaks to good work, not to the physical product that is put on your doorstep every day. And I that was the struggle that happened at the Times Dispatch. That happened at every newspaper in the country, I am sure. And I think that to go back to the 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 Buffett buying the Times Dispatch thing. I mean, the thing that Buffett sort of famously said that was alarming to me a decade ago or whenever it was that that happened is that Warren Buffett said, I still think there's a future in print newspapers, not in journalism, not in the infrastructure of these big, these companies being able to do good reporting, but in this physical thing put on your doorstep every day. And he said that in what, 2012? Right. And then he turned around by 2019 and called newspapers toast. It was one of the mulligans of his career. Sometimes, you know, they call it airlines and newspapers. How often is Warren Buffett wrong? I mean, that's that's what's so humbling is this is the most famous investor in the United States right. who spit out a tiny, tiny investment. And newspapers, in my opinion, are toast. Journalism isn't. These newspaper brands are not. But this physical product that shows up at your doorstep every day. Yeah. That is going to go away at some point in the future. Uh, there just will not be enough people to physically support paying for it and the infrastructure that goes into printing it, driving it to somebody's house, putting it on their doorstep. But we will all be worse off if journalism goes away, if good reporting goes away, if daily reporting goes away. And I don't actually think that will ever go away. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. My guest is Carrie Pfeiffer of Axios Richmond. She is the founding editor and co-author. Stay with us. Full disclosure podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fullDradio.com. Again, fullDradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, recommend us to your mother, and post us on the Axios newsletter across various localities. A shout out to our radio listeners on Virginia Public Radio, Radio IQ. Holler if you too would like me on your air. My DMs are always open. If you're just joining us, we are talking to Carrie Pfeiffer, a veteran newspaper editor. She's recently joined Axios Richmond, one of the dozens of local startups seeded by the National Digital Native. Uh, 
Axios Richmond is co-managed by Ned Oliver, who was also a veteran of various newspapers. How did you put it together, Carrie, when they came to you and said, what's your plan? I mean, when, when this recruiting happened, they wanted to create something from scratch, as I, as I quote Air Supply often, making love out of nothing at all. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things I, lo- I liked about Axios, love about Axios a lot, is that there's a lot of freedom for the newsletter authors to do what they want. Um, I was hired first. I They asked if I had any thoughts on people, on who I thought would make a good second person. Ned and I worked together at the Times-Dispatch. We are friends. We'd been friends and colleagues before, and I happen to think that he is one of the most talented journalists in this town, in this state even. Don't tell him I said that, though. So I lightly stalked him is probably the best way to say that. I thought Ned would be fantastic for this. I thought Ned and I would make a great team. And I uh, relentlessly texted him and called him and sort of hard sold him on being open to this. They had already reached out to him, sort of doing their sort of scouring of who's good in in any market. I learned later that a lot of people had said Ned Oliver is the person to call. Ned Oliver is the person to call. Mm. And he wasn't looking to make a switch at the time. But I'm relentless. So what are the plans that they have looking forward? I mean, they're, they're not content to just leave this as you and Ned and a handful of stringers. I mean, what can it, what can it emanate out into? A podcast, live events, uh, uh, a paid kind of B2B subscription service? I mean, there is optionality in this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I think growth is something that the, the, the founders want to see. It's something I want to see. I think another reporter would be phenomenal. Uh, to sort of help round out the work and what we're trying to do. Events is something that Axios National does. Some of the other locals, the ones that launched a year and a half ago, already doing events. And I don't think, I don't think paid events are a thing yet on the local level, but I can say it is a, it is a loyal readership in a way I've never experienced in my career. And I think part of it is sort of the tone, how it's, it's, it's written in a very personal Carrie and Ned to, to Robin, to reader Robin. It builds this, this great relationship between the, between the readers and the authors. And so I think there's all kinds of opportunities there to expand it. it. To me, I'd like to see it keep within our footprint in a way where maybe it's, you know, conversations around what's happening in the, in, in the news right now. Maybe it's events with, with some speakers some local po- politicians speaking on issues. I don't know what that would look like, but podcasts. Yeah. I don't know. I don't how know many how, users, do how many users do we have so far? I don't know if we're allowed to share those numbers. I will say that we are about as big as the times dispatches paid print subscribers. Wow. About not quite there yet, but we will be soon. Is there an inflection point where you, they could say theoretically, and I don't mean to put you in a spot Go show up outside the Times Dispatch. Do your stalking. Clearly, people are being taking buyouts, and they're more nervous than they've ever been at the Times Dispatch with the hedge fund kind of affixed to the parent company's ankle. Is there a return on investment to go and take the best three or four reporters at the Times Dispatch right now and plug them right into Axios? The thing I notice is with with great reporters like Felix Salmon, who used to be attached to Reuters or to other publications, you no longer need that publication for your mooring. I mean, a Michael Paul Williams, the Pulitzer Prize winning columnist at the Richmond Times Dispatch, his reputation kind of stands on its own right now. He could port that column to a substack or to another area. I mean, it's it's kind of um, journalist as his or own own franchise. 
Yeah, I, and I think that's been, you know, that's sort of come out of social media in many, in many ways, uh, these sort of individualizing of, of brands around specific journalists. I mean, I think I know who I love in this city, who I think is doing fantastic work in this city, and I would be delighted to have any journalists in this town, honestly, join join Axios Richmond. I think we're still new, though. I mean, you know, we haven't been doing this for, what, not even six months yet. And there's still, we're learning more every day. We're learning more about the bulleting format, how to, re- like, where our spots are that we can report with a small team. And I think we would like to see our growth come once we sort of have a better handle on this sort of daily grind of of how we're putting this newsletter together every day and what's going to matter to Richmond at the end of next year. I felt like I had a really good idea of that at the beginning of this year. Uh, what Richmonders would care about, what the news issues are going to be. And that's changed so dramatically in just a few months, 10 months into the year. Carrie, in the five minutes or so we have left with you, close us out. I mean, I really stay up and worry about news deserts, but this is not something that polls well with people. Like if you're out there saying, are you worried about inflation? Are you worried about this? I mean, even in, in Sarah Fisher's post about the brutal winter coming for media, the the trust, American trust in mass media remains at a near record low according to new data from Gallup. How do you convince people that it matters if your local newspaper and local newswire copy goes away? This is an existential problem. Corruption will go up. Accountability will fall. God, I wish I knew how to to save journalism and build trust in journalism. I think do the work. I think journalists need to do the work. I think they are in many ways. I mean, they are in in a million ways. And I think any working journalist today is very conscious of the fact that there is this feeling of distrust and to ensure that we're being very conscious in terms of how we are choosing our stories, presenting our stories. That's something that was very important at the Times-Dispatch in 2020, 2021, to make sure that we were being thoughtful in our in our st- story choices, that it was not just coming from a perspective of what we think journalists want to read, but what Richmond wants to read, including Richmond of uh, Richmonders of color, Richmonders who are poor, Richmonders who are rich, middle class Richmonders. Um, I think do the work. I think you build trust by doing good work. And then uh, has has anybody else done this nationally so far? Doubled down in local and done well. I mean, if you back out the New York Times, if you back out the extraordinary examples, I mean, even the Washington Post is struggling right now. But is any local newspaper or local affiliate is there is there kind of a benchmark for you guys that somebody pulled it off correctly? Maybe. I don't know, Texas Monthly and a, and, and a, a, a conglomerate, a, you know, Gulf States newsroom. I, 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 I worry about this. I mean, in my hometown, Miami Herald uh, was acquired. The parent company was acquired by a hedge fund after years of being starved by Knight Ritter and McClatchy, the sister newspaper in Fort Lauderdale, the South Florida Sun Sentinel. I think it's was, uh, you know, Tribune, the parent, was acquired by a hedge fund. We lost Style Weekly, the alternative newspaper in this town that did a lot of great journalism that the Richmond Times-Dispatch and others weren't covering. And I look statewide and think about all of the various news deserts that are emanating. It's urgent to you and you and me, uh, but do people out there realize that this is kind of creeping on their territory? It's coming to your neighborhood. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know that, that people realize it's happening, but I think I think Axios is, I mean, I, and to be clear, I mean, I've drunk the Kool-Aid here. I drank all the Kool-Aid, but I think Axios is one of is doing a very good job in one of an an early model trying to get into this space of doing local journalism and doing it well. And it is a company run by two journalists. It That shows in the work. It shows in the selections. Um, but you should take a look at Axios Miami and tell me what you think. 
I should. Uh, in August, incidentally, Cox Enterprises acquired Axios for $522 million. It's looked at one of the most successful exits in uh, digital native investing. Let's not forget who Cox Media Cox Enterprises is. It's dedicated. It says it's dedicating to building a better future through our leading communications, automotive, and media companies. Founded in 1898 by Ohio Governor James Cox, the company is a family-owned business committed to its people's communities and planet. I mean, it's like the newspaper company going back. It owns the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Dayton Daily News, and other Ohio newspapers, and they're doubling down on a digital native. Is this something that gives you hope for the future? Obviously, it's a big infusion. It's somebody who believes in your strategy. It's somebody who understands local news. Yeah, and it, and it sounds like I've never worked for a Cox paper. There, some of my Axios local colleagues have at papers across the country and say nothing but good things, uh, nothing but good things out of them, out of Austin, out of Atlanta. It seems like it's a cash infusion, and it's good news for us. And thus far, it's been zero change. It is a company still run by journalists. And it feels in the day to day work of it like a company run by journalists. Carrie Pfeiffer of Axios Richmond, I got to say, I'm impressed at how seamlessly you made the transition from the Times Dispatch to Axios and, and created this, you know, this this tentpole must read dispatch every morning. But I have to say, I miss your RVA Dine side. I miss the side of you that talked about restaurants. You do kind of weave some of that gossip into the Axios emails every morning, but I've always looked at you as this RVA restaurant, Richmond restaurant luminary. And how much of that can you fit into this persona? So I feel like I'm finally getting back in, back into it. It took me a little bit of like learning the Axios, uh, the sort of the daily machinations of what we, we have to do to put the newsletters out. But I've already had, what, two dining pieces this week. I've got two more in the works. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's ever going to look like it did at the Times Dispatch, and that's a good thing. But I think Richmond restaurants are too much in my in my heart and in my coverage area for me to let that go for long. And it is a industry right now that it is in its own free fall. So I think it matters more than ever to be covering that. To that end, you owe me lunch. Don't forget. Carrie Piper <laughs> of Axios Richmond, it's a joy to finally have you on. And please do come back on and extend the invitation as well to Ned Oliver. I shall. Thanks, Robin. Full disclosure, stay with us. If you are just joining us, we were talking to Carrie Pfeiffer of Axios Richmond, one of the prolific digital media startups, regional efforts to double down on local news, especially where the paper of record is retrenching. I wanted to close out this episode with an excerpt from our May 2022 panel with James River Riders. We called it Journalism and Democracy, and it featured Pulitzer Prize winning columnist Michael Paul Williams of the Richmond Times-Dispatch. VCU journalism professor Mallory Perryman and Shireen Azimi of the Institute for Nonprofit News. Joining me for the James River Writers discussion, the role of local journalism in a healthy democracy, Michael Paul Williams, Pulitzer Prize winning columnist with the Richmond Times Dispatch, Shireen Azimi of the Institute for Nonprofit News, and Mallory Perryman, professor of journalism at VCU's Robertson School of Media and Culture. Welcome. Michael, I have been steeped in this for Virginia Public Radio because Virginia is getting walloped in particular by the um, voracious demand that a handful of hedge funds have for regional newspapers, including your own, the Richmond Times-Dispatch, which is owned by Lee Enterprises, which was briefly owned by Warren Buffett. I remember when he acquired it roughly, what, eight, nine years ago, he said that People, uh, uh, picnics, church picnics are still going to advertise in local newspapers. They're not going anywhere. You fast forward, he spun it off to Lee and he said that local news is toast. And now you guys are staring down the barrel of a, of a hedge fund that's been known to strip and flip and kind of ride out late stage 
newspapers. What what are your thoughts? I mean, I know you've lost many colleagues over the last three months. Yeah, um, going back to Mr. Buffett, I took his acquisition of media general newspapers as a labor of love because I simply could not believe that the Oracle of Omaha would look at the newspaper industry and see a windfall. Newspapers still make money, but I just did not think that the disillusionment that he expressed years down the road that we weren't more profitable um, I just didn't see that coming. I thought he viewed newspapers as the fourth estate, a public service, something that's not your usual typical business. Mm. So that was disappointing. And so here we are, like a lot of newspapers in um, uh, the situation that we're in, where we're fighting off hedge funds, shedding staff, and who ends up being the loser in that? Well, obviously the newspaper employees who lose their jobs, but also our readers. And none of that to our topic du jour is good for democracy. Professor Perryman, what is it about newspapers? They used to have these toothsome cash flows back in the day when people are nostalgic about the era, the drink carts. It's almost this madman-like fatigue. There was no Craigslist to worry about, no Google or Facebook with the advertising duopoly sucking up all the you know ad revenue for newspapers. I grew up reading the Miami Herald and it was big and it was thick and you you would dream of being someone like a Carl Hyacin or a Dave Barry or Edna Buchanan. You know, you'd go to J school, you'd take on that debt and everything in the hopes of of working at a at a newspaper and kind of cutting your teeth and becoming a Pulitzer Prize winner or breaking a news story. Uh, now uh, what you're seeing is actually the have lots and the have really littles. Uh, the, the New York Times has kind of figured its way out of this, has gotten people to pay dearly for digital subscriptions and audio and video and crosswords and Wordle and whatever you want to call it. The Boston Globe has a billionaire backstop. The Wall Street Journal was acquired by Rupert Murdoch, for better or for worse. The Los Angeles Times acquired one of the by one of the wealthiest people in California. Is there kind of any other way out of this? Have any other models struck you as as sustainable? Is or is it just charity versus billionaire? Well, if you if you want to know why newspapers were so important, right? It was the smell and the crinkle sound they make when you when you lay them out, right? You just you can't uh, you can't beat that. <laughs> so I, I hope I hope it doesn't completely go away, but it it really seems like that might be the direction that we're headed. Um, we're seeing an increase in, of course, hedge funds slash philanthropists who really want to save local newspapers. So you're seeing a renewed interest in that. But more than anything, you're seeing a move towards nonprofit. Um, nonprofit by choice. Yes. And that seems to be sort of a, um, I, I was just looking at some data from Pew uh, Research Center about how 20% of the state reporters in the country are now nonprofit reporters, which is a very, it was, that's about four times as many as there were in 2014. So a a massive increase. So we're seeing a move towards that in a way, because we're, we know that interestingly, as the world moves more towards a subscription model, we're not sure that subscription models will ever be (laughs) profitable again for news, even though everything else seems to be a subscription now. Um, and, you know, you got your Netflix and whatnot, um, but that model is, is a very popular funding model. But of course, it, it didn't work out so well for most newspapers um, after ad revenue dried up when mostly due to, of course, Google and Facebook sucking up those dollars more so than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, but that'd be one trend that I, I find very interesting. But the question of how will local newspapers, the few that are left, because we are 
we are losing them fast and furious. I mean, it's been a mass die out since the turn of the century. And even if, you know, you could see the Pew numbers since the financial crisis. And it's uh, still going and it, it, there doesn't seem to be an insight, but I, it's interesting when you go to these, I go to tons of journalism conferences and it's always, of course, everybody's like, does anyone, has anyone figured out the new funding model yet? And of course nobody has. <laughs> Shireen, jump in. Have other countries done it in a better way? Why do I think tangentially Canada or Australia or New Zealand or somebody has a sense for the public utility and the public good, not to just leave this to the you know, caprice of uh, shareholders or, or wealthy families? Right. Well, I, I can't speak to the, the 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 globe, but I will say that people are coming. Um, certainly, they're coming to the Institute for Nonprofit News to find out how American North American nonprofits are doing it, and that includes Canada and the Caribbean. Um, so we've seen a rapid growth of our membership over the last five years, and especially over the last three years. Believe it or not, during the pandemic, more uh, nonprofit news organizations are joining. Some of them are startups, but not all. Some of them are conversion. Some of them are tiny, but not all. Um, I was just looking at our most recent index data, and we have a new one coming out in a couple of weeks. Mallory, I'm sure you'll be interested to, to see the data. But, you know, about 20% of the membership has operating budgets of $2 million or more. Again, not they're not huge, but they're also not, you know, in, infinitesimal. And more than a quarter have staffs you know, in the in the dozens. So while there's this perception that they're all these kind of mom and pop shops, you know, taking the place of the newspapers that have failed, that's actually not the case. And we're seeing not only more of these organizations, but their revenues are diversifying so that organizations that initially started out with foundation funding, or maybe one or two key donors are now attracting more donations in the five to 10,000 and above range, more regional and community foundations that are stepping in to join the national ones that kind of led the charge, and more earned revenue from advertising, business sponsorships, and events. So it's, you know, it's sort of a myth that nonprofits can't take advertising. They do, but it's a much more kind of selective, kind of locally oriented advertising. And sometimes it's what they call a business membership, where the business they want the eyeballs, but they also kind of want the goodwill and they want to reach a certain audience that that local newspaper reaches. And so they'll do a sponsorship. So I do think there is some hope for a different model. Michael, take me back to graduating from uh, journalism school. You shared with me how important was it Northwestern, Northwestern School of Journalism was and the journey to becoming, you know, uh, to being at a desired uh, uh, paper where you could establish a voice and a corner and a community and uh, really carve out a name for yourself. Well... God, I can barely remember. When did you come to Richmond? Um, I, I am a Richmond native, and I've worked at the Times-Dispatch for my entire career, which wow. makes me an anomaly. And certainly, um, um, I'm, I've, my, my type has gone the way of the dinosaur. You won't find newspaper journalists who are going to work 40 years at the same newspaper again. Those days are done. But when I entered the newspaper business in the early 1980s, even wow. though we were in the midst of a recession... Um, newspapers were still a license to print money. And um, there were just all sorts of extravagances that that I witnessed over the next decade that made you think the good times would always be there. And that hasn't been the case, obviously. And the internet um, was the major turning point. What was going through your mind when you got on Netscape in 1994, 1995, and they put all this stuff up? We used, we, they, they brought the, the computers in the newsroom and told us to play games on them to get accustomed to using them. So I, I remember a lot of time spent playing Jeopardy 
and and online games. It was a gas, and you just did not take it seriously. I mean, it's easy um, in hindsight to cast aspersion at the people who ran newspapers for not having more vision, um, for not buying Google, Google, getting in on the ground floor and, and scooping that up, and we'd all be good at that point. No, you didn't see that coming in. Just the decision to give it away. It, it wasn't taken seriously, clearly. Although, riddle me this. You are smarter people than I am. Why do they get to use, why do the Googles of the world, why do the Facebooks of the world, why do the Twitters of the world get to use our content and not remunerate us one penny? Please explain that to me. Dr. Per- Dr. Perryman, jump in. They'd had an agreement at one point and it did not work out well. <laughs> it was, it went from, there was something special. It was like Facebook news or something. And they were going to give news organizations a cut or a certain percentage of um, the revenue from all of the clicks. And uh, I don't know what happened to that. I'm pretty sure it's no longer, <laughs> it's no longer a thing. That's interesting. Um, I mean, do they, do they share metrics with you, Michael, of how many people come straight to the RTD's website for your copy versus those who access it through Google or Facebook or Twitter or some other fast track channel where they can capture the rents? Uh, I'm sure they do, but all that's way above my pay grade. I'm just a a country journalist. (laughs) Well, Shireen, tell me about uh, some of the papers, some of the organizations that have stuck to the not-for-profit model. I mean, certainly in my world, in public media, this you kind of live by the pledge drive and die by the pledge drive. And um, it has, you know, it has worked, especially during the Trump bump, for uh, several public radio affiliates. That suddenly, when people realize that democracy might democracy might be jeopardized, it behooves you to chip in. I mean, it's actually, you know, they they, they make the case ad nauseum over the radio that it's a good deal that you're getting, but that doesn't resonate with younger listeners necessarily. There's a there's an actuarial and generational divide with the whole pledge drive thing. You don't have people listening to radio or watching linear TV as much. Talk to me about that. Yeah. So what we see our members doing is, you know, they've adapted to to the market, right? So it's it's email newsletters. It's and it's not an annual pledge. It's a it's a recurring thing. Um, they don't so much use the term subscriptions because most of our members don't have paywalls, believe it or not, um, and most of them share their content freely, including with for profit publishers. So like, if we have three hundred and sixty members, there are about six thousand media outlets that actually republish the content. But still, in terms of the subscription model, we think of it more as a membership model. So you have organizations. And I think this is appealing to the younger people. It's like, hey, you know, you're one of us, right? You're like, you're part of this effort that we're that we have. And so can you chip in $10 a month or $20, $20 a month? So it's more of a recurring contribution. And then yes, they do do their end of year fundraising campaigns like any nonprofit. And we have a program called Newsmatch where a lot of our members are eligible. And if they raise a certain amount, it's usually between 10 and 12, 20,000, this national pool of funders will match that amount. So that's a way to kind of get a little end of year spark going. Um, but honestly, I think it's much more, the appeal is much more like tugging at the heartstrings. Like it's important for you to have us here. And therefore, just like you could give to the local library or you give to the, the hospital pledge drive or you support the volunteer ambulance company, support us because we're here and we've got your back. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're discussing the role of local journalism in a healthy democracy. I am a panelist on behalf of the James River Writers on a on a Zoom panel, and we're co-opting this for full disclosure. Thank you very much. Our guests are Shireen Azimi of the Institute for Nonprofit News. We have Michael Paul Williams, columnist for the Richmond Times-Dispatch, and Professor Mallory Perryman of VCU's Robertson School of Media, 
and culture, uh, where she teaches broadcast journalism. I have to ask you, I have a lot of New York Times envy. I was a fellow there during business school, and for the longest time, they brought in McKinsey and the others. They said, how do we thread this thing? We don't want to go slash and burn. We don't want to follow a lot of these regional newspapers that thought that you could cut your way to sustainable profitability in a higher stock price. They stuck with the newsroom. They stuck with FedExing the flak jackets to Iraq and everything. And finally, finally, that paid off, especially in the Trump bump, where if you look at the earnings right now, they don't care if print advertising is hemorrhaging in the double digits because they have such a pop of digital subscribers. People have been trained to pay and to pay dearly to the extent that they can go out and buy, what was it, The Athletic recently? I mean, that they go in and disrupt NPR by putting out The Daily, that they have a brand studio internally. I don't know of any other newspaper that has done that without a billionaire backstop, Dr. Perryman. They haven't. The New York Times is a is a, a beast <laughs> in the in the in the news world. I mean, and I think you're you're pointing out something really important. They're the only ones who have done it that way, and they're probably the only ones who can do it that way because there's only so much space. I mean, you can't replicate that that model um, on a local level, and it works for the Times, and thank goodness it does. Um, but national news organizations overall, your flagship media organizations, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and then of course all the networks, NBC, ABC, CBS, and the cable channels, they're not the ones. <laughs> the ones in trouble. They have their their struggles of course, but like they're fine. Like the big guys are doing okay. And what we're having a trouble with is the local folks and that's uh, that to me is far scarier than the prospect of losing CNN. <laughs> well, what about what about the the likes of Axios and the other digital natives that have venture funding or private equity funding that can swoop into a news desert such as Richmond? I believe Axios Richmond just launched. And maybe with two people, but again, you got to collect the hard copy, the hard kind of school board meeting stuff, Michael, from actual workers out there doing it. You could only fill a newspaper with so much AP and Bloomberg copy and Reuters copy. Yeah, we've, we've watched Axios come in with interest and um, uh, remains to be seen um, how that works and why it would work better for them than the people who are actually here on the ground um, in a place like Richmond. That was an excerpt from Journalism and Democracy, our special live panel episode with James River Writers. Catch it in its entirety, wherever you get your pods. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us to friends and family. And follow along on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle fulldradio. You can catch me weekly on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. And a special shout out to our radio listeners on Radio IQ WVTF across the great Commonwealth of Virginia. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week. 